So occasionally in our culture, we will have uh, someone that turns 100 years of age, and uh, when they do, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, there was a gentleman a handful of years back that turned 100, and interviewers go to him, and they just go, hey, uh, tell us like what's one of the most incredible things that's happened in your life? And he replied this, uh, I live today, and I have absolutely no enemies in the world. And she's like dumbfounded a little bit, a little bit baffled. The reporter goes, wow, that's an amazing thing. Like, lean into that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about it. He goes, yeah, it's pretty simple. He goes, I've outlived all of them. Uh, and, and I started thinking about that. And I'm like, hey, you know, there is one enemy, one adversary that we will not outlive. That as long as we are here in this mortal body, in this day and age, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, this present day of darkness that we have to be vigilant, that we have to be sober-minded, that we have to be alert, is what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, that at the end of the day, there is a real adversary, there is a real enemy, uh, there is one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to accuse you. John 8 says that he is the father of lies. He wants to deceive you. He wants to get into your head. He wants to remind you who you are apart from God. And uh, that's a real enemy, an adversary that we have to wrestle with every day. And so Paul shares with us that. Now, here's the deal. If we're going to, in a sense, stand against an adversary like that, then we have to be prepared to know that there is a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is that good shepherd, uh, that we are his sheep, that he knows us, that we follow him. And uh, what's the incredible thing about all of that um, is that uh, because he's such a good shepherd that we are not left uh, to our own defenses, that he is with us, that he's for us, all those things. As a matter of fact, we're going to start a new series, so let me just give you a, a quick commercial. Uh, next week, we're beginning a new series uh, in Psalm 23, and we're going to uh, be in it for uh, quite a few weeks, and we're going to take a look at a psalm that oftentimes is read at a funeral, but it's not meant uh, for the dead. It's meant for the living. It's meant for us as a guide on to know and follow Jesus. And so I pray that you would uh, lean into that. It starts next week. Uh, today we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to take a look uh, at this uh, scripture. If you have not been with us, this is week 15 of a sermon series through the book of Ephesians, and encourage you to lean in with us as we dive into the text. Let's pray together. So everybody on both campuses, if you'll join me, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in a bit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for all that you've done for me. I pray, God, for us and our time together. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love you, to know you, to follow you, um, to not be caught off guard by the father of lies. I pray, that, Lord, that we would know that there is a real enemy, an adversary, one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. And I pray that we would be vigilantly prepared. And I pray that you would use the text today to help us do that. Uh, we love you. We thank you that you are with us. Uh, you tell us in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, Lord, we are so thankful that you're on our side. And we're so thankful that you give us the tools to wrestle against the principalities and the powers of this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, and so as we dive into Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, uh, week 15 of this series, uh, Paul uses a word uh, in the Greek uh, that's the word loipoi, which literally means finally. Now, if you've been with us all of these 15 weeks, you might be saying the same thing, like finally, oh, we're coming to the end of this series. Uh, that's not what Paul means. Paul means as a result of all that I've said and shared, as a result of the theological implications you get in chapter 1, 2, and 3, 
history as a result of the application that we live in, chapters 4, 5, and 6. He goes, finally, I want you to know that you should be strong in the Lord. Uh, and, and that's what he says. Loy poi, finally, my brothers, my sisters, be strong. And, and then he says, when he says be strong in the Lord, he uses this incredible word there for to be strong. And it's this word of the Greek that literally means that you're not strong in and of yourself, but it's a strength that you receive. Who are you receiving it from? The Lord, because He is strong and mighty. Matter of fact, it is the Lord and His strength and His might that we're able to do anything. And so, what he is trying to help us realize as an audience that reads this, but more importantly, the church in Ephesus in a day and age in which their culture was dark, divisive, led astray by various ideologies and philosophies and um, other uh, things that were, uh, in a sense, corrupt in that culture. He goes, you should be strong and you don't possess strength in and of yourself. Why? Because in our flesh, apart from God, Paul says it this way in Romans 7, uh, verse 18, there is nothing good that lives in us apart from Christ. And so as we know that, we have to lean into the things that ultimately are good about our lives and there is only things good because they're attached to the one who is good. The author of our hope, of our salvation, of our life, of our sanctification. And so we want to be strong in the Lord and His strength, of His might. And then it says, verse 11, and put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand. Um, so put on the whole armor of God. Now we're going to talk mostly this morning about the armor of God and what that looks like. We're going to talk about a handful of misconceptions and we're also going to talk about a handful of things that we should really lean into. But the idea of put on is this word... Uh, in the Greek, which is just in duo, uh, E-N-D-U-O, and it literally means to sink into. It's a familiar word because we see it all the time in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses it this way to the church of Colossae. He goes, hey, put on Christ or clothe yourself in Christ is what he's saying. And so the idea of this word as you put on to is to sink into something. The idea is to have something that you're rooted in. It's not in a sense a metaphor that you would that you would kind of do on a repetitive action. The idea is that you would sink into it as a result of. So it's to sink into Put on, and what is it? The armor of God. So put on. Just as you're clothed in Christ, just as you're clothed in the hope of His salvation, just as you're clothed in His strength and His might and His power, you should also be clothed in the armor of God. And so you sink into or put on the whole armor so that you might be able to stand. Uh, and the word uh, there for stand is just this Greek word that literally means to just, in a sense, firmly establish yourself. In this case, we're firmly establishing ourselves against the schemes of the devil. The schemes there is this word on uh, the Greek, methodeia, which literally is the word we get methods from. Uh, but it's, think about methods of the enemy, the one who is uh, cunning, crafty. He is called the Diablos or the father of lies because he wants to accuse you. He wants to lie or deceive you. Uh, he has multiple names and he uses a variety of tricks, methods, and schemes in order to get into our lives. 
And so he is the devil. In this case, he is a real enemy that we have to be prepared for. And the reason we have to be prepared for him is because next to God and the triune God that he is, which is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the next mentioned person in all of our Bible is our enemy, the adversary. You see him throughout the entire scriptures in, in ways that he, in a sense, allures or captivates or even entices people. He begins that in Genesis chapter 3, and you see that go all the way to the end of Revelation, his last mention in Revelation. 19 and 20. So you see him all throughout the Bible. You see him uh, referred to in a variety of different ways. He is in Genesis 3, the accuser. In uh, Isaiah 14, he is called the bright and morning star. He is the one in which de- derives the name Lucifer from that text. He is the ruler of the of demons, Matthew 12. He's the God of this world or in this age, 2 Corinthians 4. He is our uh, accuser. He's the prince of the power of air, which we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, in about week 4 or 5. Um, he is the roaring lion in which wants to deceive you and entice you and drag you away. Rome, or, uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He is the serpent. He is the dragon. He is the adversary. He is the one who tempts and uh, will tempt anyone, including that and of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He is the anointed cherub. He is very beautiful in his alluring, and yet he is very deceitful and dark in all of his ways. Uh, he is called Beelzebub, Belial, the wicked one, many other names and references. He is a real enemy in which is attacking people And so what Paul is saying is is this, you should be prepared. Put on, step into the strength of God's power. At the end of the day, a very familiar passage and text to us is John chapter 15, verse 5, a one that I've referenced over 25 times in the last year on a Sunday morning. And it simply just says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, a man remains in me, and I in him, he can bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. When we as believers in Christ begin to realize that against the schemes of the enemy, we are inadequate, that we are nothing, and we begin to lean into the strength of God's power and might, we can begin to be the valiant warriors, and we can begin to be God's people the way that he intends us to be. But listen, listen, if you are not leaning into Christ, that means that you are weak and feeble in our flesh, our minds are not guarded, from deceits and schemes of the devil, and we are prone not only to leave our God, the God we love, but we are prone to attacks from the enemy in ways that do not please God and ultimately will cause us to doubt him in many, many ways. And so as we think about put on the armor of God, I would encourage you today to lean in well so that you know what that means. And so he says we put it on to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And he tells us why. Verse 12, the reason why we put these on is because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, even against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. At the end of the day, I think oftentimes we get up and we think our biggest problem is our boss or our coworkers or our friends or our family who doesn't see the way we see. At the end of the day, oftentimes when you think a challenge in your life, you typically see a person. And typically that person is wrapped in flesh and blood. And your thought is, if I could just put them on a target and I could just throw things at it, I would feel better. But what Paul is saying, he goes, no, no, no. In our limited framework and the way that we oftentimes work in our mind and in our flesh is we think that all the things that are happening around is a result of people. But he goes, I want you to know that there are things that have always been happening from the beginning of time that are happening in the heavenly places that you don't see and that typically as people in flesh, because we're so limited in our our scope and ability to see eternal things. He goes, 
you're looking at mundane things that oftentimes could be related to as minutia, while God is doing things, and even in the heavenlies, the cosmos, the enemy is doing things, and oftentimes will even use people as his pawns in order to advance darkness. So the reality is, is whether you and I want to think about it or even know it or even see it, Paul says there are real battles going on in the heavenlies. Oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think about real battles going on in the heavenlies because I'm so worried about what's finite and what's temporal and what I'm worried about now. And oftentimes that's my finances or it's my work schedule or it's things happening in our house or uh, things not happening in our house. But there's just a variety of things that we set our minds on. I think that's why the scriptures tell us to set our minds on things above. At the end of the day, we know that our, our, our bodies are uh, here and, and, and they're going to come and they're going to go. So we know that we are temporary vessels. We know that we come like a mist and we vanish. We, we, we're like a vapor. We, we come from the dust and we return to the dust. We know our life is quick and fleeting. It's momentary. But what's crazy is that in our momentary fleeting life, we spend so much of our time thinking about what's temporal and what, in a sense, feeds our flesh now. And what Paul is saying is, no, the real battle is happening in the heavenlies and we need to be prepared for it. How do we prepare? And he'll, he's going to use a theme over and over again. He goes, you ready to stand. You get ready to stand. You get ready to stand. And this word stand uh, is this word in the Greek, histeme, which literally means, in a sense, to put yourself in opposition to the enemy. So think about that if there is a real enemy and he is doing things in spiritual ways and dark places, and it's the forces of ultimately the opposition that we should stand against, then how do we stand? And he goes, you stand with the variety of things. And then he tells us what they are. So he says, hey, so therefore, verse 13, as a result of our war not being against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the dark world, uh, against the things that are happening in the heavenly places, the one who wants to deceive you, he goes, now you should stand with the whole armor of God that you might with, be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then verse 14, he says, stand. So if you see right there, he says, uh, stand four times in really three verses. So 11, 12, 13, getting to 14, he goes, stand, stand, withstand, stand. The idea is there's a real enemy. He's an adversary. He wants to steal, kill, destroy you. He wants to lie to you. He wants to tell you that you're worthless, that you have no purpose in life, and that God really hasn't done anything for you. Matter of fact, did God really say what he said? And he wants to doubt you. He wants to allure you. He wants to entice you. And Paul says, but you and I should stand and put on the armor of God. Now, real quickly, I want you to know two things. When we think about put on the armor of God, I think it's very important and under, to understand that while Paul uses a metaphor of putting on the armor of God, and he gives us a variety of uh, defensive mechanisms like the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, he gives us the feet of readiness, uh, he gives us all of these different things. Um, the shield of faith. It's important to know that while we have those and he gives those to us in a metaphorical sense, those are not things to metaphorically pray over your life. So what I mean by that is oftentimes I'll have somebody go, hey man, the devil has just really been attacking me lately. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And they're like, well, I mean, just, he's just all over me. And I'm like, okay, so, but, but don't worry, pastor. I've been, I've been praying this morning that the Lord would, would put on my armor. 
I like I'm praying that he'll give me the shield of faith, you know, and and I'm like, oh, okay, what? And then they really believe that because they prayed a prayer that the Lord is going to protect them in all these areas. But here's what I want you to realize. That's not what the text says, and it's not what the text means. It's not a metaphor to use in our prayer life when we don't practice it in our daily life. So let me explain it in a way that's real tangible that you could understand. Uh, if we have a young man that's going to be sent to uh, the military, United States military, um, he is going to go through a process in which is called basic training. Basic training provides him the basic essentials to know and navigate just warfare and just life as a soldier. An adaptation from a life as a civilian to now you're going into a preparation for something big. Then from there, they're going to go and they're going to be more skilled and trained as an artisan in their particular craft. Now, let me ask you a question. The United States um, Army, uh, Air Force, Naval Academy has at their disposal amongst the world's best weapons. But if you are to arm a, a, a young man with the best weapons and he has no sense of how to use them, are those weapons that are available of any disposal at all to him? And the answer is no. At the end of the day, you can have the best weapons, and if you don't have a soldier equipped to use them, the weapons don't matter. It doesn't matter if you have great artillery. artillery. It doesn't matter if you have great weaponry. It doesn't matter if you have great machinery. It doesn't matter all the things that are available to you if you're not trained to go to the front lines. And it would be ridiculous for us to take a man and him sign up for the military and go, hey, we're glad that you're on our team, and then send him to the front lines. That would be ludicrous of us, right? We would never do such a thing. And so what do we do? We want to train them in order to know these things. This is what Paul's talking about. Paul is not saying that because we have Christ and living in our lives, that now uh, we can stand firm against everything. No, the idea of standing firm is that we would set ourselves up in opposition to, and you do that by learning what's available to you. And you begin to live that out. And so, yes, there are great things at our disposal in an evil day, but we have to do something in order to stand firm. And so what is that? Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, with the belt of truth. Now, he gives us the idea of these five defensive weapons, one offensive weapon, and one thing that, in a sense, should be our oath as a soldier. And so the five defensive things, one of them is a belt of truth. Now, when I think about war, uh, I don't think about a belt. Matter of fact, I don't know about y'all, but I don't wear like suits very often. I try not to, to put suits on all that often, but every suit that I put on re requires kind of a belt, you know? Um, and so it's not uncommon because I don't ever really put it on that I'll like show up at a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And I'm like, oh man, I forgot my belt. Anybody ever to do that? Yeah, like forget your belt at home, okay? Um, and, and here's the deal. When I think about going to battle, probably the first thing I'm thinking of and is not my belt. I would imagine there's a lot of, of uh, soldiers that would probably leave their belt. But the question is, is in that culture, why would you even want a belt? And here's why. is because in that culture, they wore tunics. And tunics would, in a sense, go all the way down to their feet. So think, in a sense, um, like a man in a skirt. Okay, um, you don't run in those. So what do you do? In order to go into battle, you have to cinch them up. Uh, in one text, maybe your King James or something like that, it might even encourage uh, the statement to gird up your loins. The idea is a protection in order to move forward. 
So the idea is that you would cinch up everything and that the belt is what kind of get, got everything gathered so that you could begin to move forward. Now, in this particular case, what does he say? It's the belt of truth. So don't think about the belt as much as you think about what the belt symbolizes, and that is truth. So the basic essential for the believer in Christ is truth. What is truth? The word truth here is the same truth that we've talked about as a baseline in Ephesians, and that is to know who God is. He's holy, He's perfect, He's pure. To know who we are. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're broken regardless of where we've come from, what we've done. We know there's a God who loves us and He's sought to redeem us through His holy and perfect Son named Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross for us that ultimately we'll put our faith in Him. He'll give us eternal life and He'll call us sons of God. Ephesians 4, He'll call us partakers of His promise, members of His body, heirs of His family. That's who we are. It's a basic framework of truth. Here's what God says and this is truth. Now, we live in a culture, as did uh, the Ephesians, live in a culture where truth was very relative. It was kind of what you decided truth was. And there's a basic um, framework on where truth can be derived. It can be derived of a moral man seeking in philosophy and philosophical ways to define life for himself. Or you could say, no, the basic framework of truth rests in God, the definer of all things, life, creation, his plans, his purposes, and you have to decide. For those who are under the banner of Christ and have yielded to him, the belt of truth symbolizes that he is our basic foundation. Matthew 7, we don't, we don't stand on sinking sand, but we stand on a solid rock. That when the storms come and the water rises, that we're not blown over, we're not toppled, or as Ephesians 4 would say, tossed to and fro because we stand firm on truth. Truth is God's word, it is his ways, it is his will, it is what he has defined as himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the foundation. So we put him on as our belt of truth. Then we also have the breastplate of righteousness. Um, the breastplate comes from a Greek word, thorax, which literally means to cover from neck to navel on both sides, front and back. Regardless of which way you go into battle, which way you turn, you're protected. What are you protected in? Because you know truth and because you have put on truth in your life, you've clothed yourself in God's word and his knowledge of his truth and his ways, you now can move forward with a breastplate of righteousness, which protects all of your vital organs. In a sense, the way the enemy doesn't take you out is because you're protected because you know truth, and now you're growing in truth. The idea is that you would grow up. Uh, there's a variety of ways in the New Testament that you see that. Uh, you can grow up from milk to meat, you can grow up um, from 1 Corinthians 13, childish ways to maturity. Uh, you could grow up from being a boy to a man or a girl uh, to a woman. The idea of that is because we know God's truth, we live in his truth, we dwell in his truth, we walk in his ways, his statutes, his commands, we no longer walk in foolishness. Galatians 5, we no, no longer gratify the desires of our old, selfish, foolish, deceitful ways. The flesh... We're no longer as prone to leave the God we love. Why? Because we have truth and we're walking in his righteousness, which is right standing with God. We now are righteous in his sight. It's growth. It's sanctification. That's what it is. It's moving forward 
in an evil day because we have been fast with the belt of truth and we've put on the breastplate of righteousness. And now we have, verse 15, we have put shoes on our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Um, the idea of this is another version might say, your feet are shod. The idea here is that you are prepared. Matter of fact, the Greek word there um, is... Uh, an incredible word that doesn't say like ready, like, hey, you're ready in the sense of, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, whenever it comes. But the idea of that Greek word is the act of preparing to be ready. I think about it this way, 1 Peter 3, 15, that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Many of us can't share the gospel with anybody because we're not prepared to. We've never even thought about how that would go. We've never studied it. We've never memorized any of it. And we've never thought to share that. We're not ready. At the end of the day, that's the idea. The idea is not, hey, I'm ready to go to war because I know God and he's on my side. The idea of ready is, is that I am prepared in season and out of season. I'm ready at a moment's notice. Now, can I just real quickly, I even, I even told the first service and, and, and I'm prepared to tell you, I'm about to start preaching. And, and here's why I'm going to preach. Because I really believe in this day and age, the weakest point of the American church and the weakest point of Stone Point Church is there are people who aren't ready. They're not ready. You're just not ready. And you go, well, ready for what? I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about just the battle. I'm talking about just, you're just not ready. Like where we are the weakest right now in our entire body of believers is that we really don't believe Jesus at his word in John chapter 15. When Jesus says in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you are branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what I take that to mean. Here's what, here's what I think it means. Jesus goes, I am the baseline of truth. I am perfectly righteous. If you're going to stand in a day of evil, you will not do that in and of yourself. You need me. Now, here's the deal. If the belt of truth is God's word as the baseline, and righteousness is produced from knowing his word, and we become prepared to go to battle as a result of his truth and his righteousness, the question is, what are you doing with his word? Now, real quickly, let me just think about that. I'm not asking, do you have a verse emailed to you in the week? I'm asking, what are you doing with his word? I mean, there's a lot of us that we're not ready because you don't even believe there's a war going on in the heavenlies. Many of us aren't ready because you're apathetic and you're ill-prepared. You make more excuses about why you don't read your Bible than... It's crazy, right? Because, I mean, I'm just so busy. I'm like, too busy to be with the God of the universe who redeemed you from your sin and ultimately wants to live in you and produce righteousness? Like, honestly, real quickly, help me understand. What is more of a priority than being with the God of the universe who has saved us from ourselves? Nothing, right? Especially if we believe the words of Jesus that apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you think about apart from God, I'm weak and I'm feeble and there's nothing good about me, which is kind of what the scripture says, then you go, I have every reason to begin my day with knowing and abiding in the word of God, right? Yeah, shake your head in Edgewood because they're not helping me here. Yes, the idea is that we should learn to lean in. Like, what helps you from being deceived? Uh, Peter says it in Romans, uh, um, 1 Peter 5 8. He goes, hey, stay sober minded and alert, for the enemy is real. 
He is prowling, uh, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If we have a real enemy, an adversary, and he's waiting for somebody who's weak and feeble so he can jump on his prey, take them captive, the question is, how do I keep from being his prey? Well, I stay alert. How do I stay alert? I have the truth of God and his righteousness. So the question is, is do you study the word? Many of us don't. Do you memorize the word? Oh, no, it's just too hard. I, just, I, did, I could never do that in school. Neither could I. But I didn't see school's relevance. I see the relevance for this. It's why I study and I memorize Scripture. It's because I see the relevance. Do you pray the truth? Do you live the truth? That's what we're talking about. That's the idea. Like, we have to lean into this. This is the truth of God. It's what prepares us. Verse 16, in all circumstances, it prepares us to take up the shield of faith. The shield is this uh, word, it's literally uh, the word in the Greek, thurios, which is, is not like a small shield, but it's a very large shield. So think big, oblong, four-sided shield. Um, think about when you go into battle, this shield is what, in a sense, renders protection for your entire body because it reminds you of your faith. The word faith there is this word pistis, which literally is the conviction of all the things we believe about God. So if you believe that God is the word of truth, that he is our God and our source of hope, he's the one who gives us strength, then your faith about him is what helps you move forward. And so the way that we protect ourselves is living out the faith of the very things we proclaim with our mouth. It's the idea of acting out in our preparation. It's the idea of living these things out. Now, when you think about the uh, in a sense, the shield of faith, what's incredible is you should also think about why it's there. And it says it's to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, when you think flaming, flaming darts, maybe you think like flaming darts, you think about, oh, Braveheart or something. You know, in, in Braveheart, like they go in this big battlefield and you got adversaries on every side. And then what do they do? They light these arrows and they shoot them all at one time, hundreds into the dark or even into the day. And, and then you just see them begin to to hit their, their, their adversary, their enemy, right? Um, and what happens on the other side is they have these big oblong shields and they begin to duck behind them. Some are pierced because they don't take advantage of the, the defense mechanism they have. Others are caught off guard. But do you know why those, those things are shot? It's because all at once, when there's hundreds and hundreds of them coming at one time, it produces mass hysteria, it produces fear, and it produces chaos. But we have the shield of faith in which we can stand. Now, when I think about that word, uh, extinguish all the flaming arrows, it's interesting that in the Greek, when you think about arrows or that word there, it actually doesn't just mean arrows or darts. It could be javelin. It could be missile. It could be arrow. Like, I got a whole new understanding of it. I'm like, Okay, so sometimes the enemy doesn't feel like he's throwing me like a dart at me. Sometimes it feels like a flaming arrow. And there's other times in our lives, I'm like, I feel like he just hit me with a missile. Like they just came out of nowhere. But the idea is what keeps you in the middle of all that from just running away. And it's your faith. At the end of the day, you have a faith in a God who is true to his word. 
faith that you know that he'll never leave nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. You know that he is with you, that you can cast your cares upon him, that when you're weak, when you're heavy laden, that he'll give you rest. We know that he is true, that he is faithful, that he's faithful to avenge all of the wrongdoing in the world, that one day everything that is wrong in the world will be righted before a holy God. We know he's overcome the the one who accuses us. We know that our battle is over, that the war has been won. We know truth. Stand in that. That's our faith. And then he says, and then take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation um, is the hope of our salvation. It is the thing that produces glory in us. It's the thing that produces an expectation, a longing in us. As Peter would say it, it's what helps us know that our faith, uh, though right now seems perishable, is imperishable. That we will never spoil or fade away. That we have an inheritance that goes on forever and ever and ever. That's the hope of our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says this way to the church of Thessalonica. He just says, hey, let us be sober-minded, having put on the breastplate of faith and the helmet of the hope of our salvation, that because of God and his rich mercy, he has lavished upon us in love, we are his children. Can I get an amen? That we are his, that he has redeemed us, that we are worthy, not because we've got our stuff together, but because he was perfectly righteous in our place. He is worthy of everything, so let's stand in him. Let's be rooted and built up. Strength of faith, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Overflowing with the thankfulness because we've always been being taught these things. It is standing on our faith. There's the five defensive mechanisms. Then he says, and then let me tell you about this offensive weapon that you have. And he says, and it is the, the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon that you have, and it's the Word of God. Now, I find a couple of things very interesting about this verse. When it says the sword of the Spirit, there's two different swords that you think of. Oftentimes, uh, because we're men uh, in this room, uh, a lot of us, uh, we think a really huge sword, like one that we would whip out, and, and like you, you think, oh, yeah, that's what's going to take down the enemy. But that's not the word that Paul uses. Matter of fact, he uses the word Mahira here. It's a sword that everyone in this room, male or female, could use. Matter of fact, Mahira is a small sword. Think it's a kind of a word we get from it is machete. It's 18 inches. You can pull it out. It helps you be close to your adversary. You don't have to get your distance. You don't have to swing it around. You don't have to be all that strong in yourself. You can actually use it. And because it's so small and you can begin to, to in a sense, use it uh, quickly, you can grow in the way that you use it with precision. Matter of fact, because it's so lightweight and you can use it as a great tool, you can begin to get more skilled as an artisan with the sword. And he says, and that sword is the word of God. So he takes the, 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 the metaphor of a machete type sword and he goes, and it's the word. And then he gives a word for, of God. And there's two words for the word of God. There's one that is the word of God, the whole counsel of God, in which we see in John 1 that Jesus is the whole counsel of God, which makes him truth. That's the word logos. There's another word that Paul uses in the word of God, which is an utterance of the entire an utterance meaning it's a, it's, a, it's a portion of, it's something that you could have at your disposal quickly. Think machete, I can grab it fast. And he uses the word rhema. And what he's saying is, he goes, listen, when you're dealing with the adversary, you, you don't always have time. Now think in the terms of the New Testament. The New Testament, Paul, as he's speaking to the church in Ephesus and he writes this letter, he can't say, hey, leaders in Ephesus... Um, and my brother Timothy, whom I love, every time you have a challenge with the, 
the spiritual force of darkness and the enemy, go grab your Greek lexicon and your entire Bible and get to reading it. He can't do that. Why? Because there's not one. Which is kind of crazy because we have the entire counsel of God's word and we don't use it. What do you think that the early church would have done to get their hands on one of these? And so what did they do? They took the ramas, the small utterances that they have been passed down, and they memorized them. They write it on the tablet of their heart. Here's the best example I can give you. I'm going to read it to you in Matthew chapter 4, okay? So here it is. I'll put it for you up on the screen. It just says this. Then Jesus will let up the spirit, the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, Hey, if you're the Son of God, command these stories to come to loaves of bread. But then Jesus answered, Out of Deuteronomy, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See that response? Jesus didn't have the Torah with him. He just had it memorized. Um, then the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. On the other hand, they'll bury you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus said, hey, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Second response with a rhema, a quick word from the word of God. Then he says um, this, he goes, again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain, bestowed him on all the kings of the world and the glory. He said to him, hey, um, all this I'll give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus responds again with another rhema. You shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him, right? And then look at verse 11. This is huge. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. How do we get the enemy to run? You know the word of God. You know the word of God. Jesus says, John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches, the man remains in him, I'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot stand firm to an adversary if you don't know the word of God, if you don't memorize the word of God, and you don't apply the word of God. Friends, our church is dying from within because people don't put a value on the word of God. And I just pray that we will. I pray that it will be the conversation that we have every Sunday morning. I pray, I pray, I pray um, that the Cowboys win today. No. I pray that our conversations would begin to take a different form and a shape in the lobby of saying, hey, what's the Lord teaching you right now? And I pray that there would be men and women in this place that would just say, the Lord has just confirmed to me this week in Amos, as I'm reading, that he is faithful to his word, that he always does what he says. And even though the vast majority of the culture in Amos chapter 3, there is going to be a scanty remnant that will always follow him. There are always going to be a few people that are going to love him. They're going to choose him. They're going to obey the precepts of the word. The question is, is, will you be a part of that remnant in a culture that's dark and the spiritual forces are leading people astray? The question is, is, will you be led astray? Will you lean into the word of God? Will you allow him to teach you, mold you? Will you be a soldier skilled and trained? Are you okay with just being another one of those people in America in this day and age to show up and go to church and hear some guy chew on you a little bit, encourage you, and then send you out. I would just say, by no means is that the gospel of grace that brings us peace. And so I pray that we would be that people. And then here's the soldier's oath. Here it is, if you look, and I'm going to go rather quickly through it. Um, he just says, now praying at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The idea is uh, if you want the devil to leave you, be, be firm, put on all the armor, begin to move forward. Again, this is not a prayer that you pray like, Lord, here, give me the armor today. It's a lifestyle you live. It is a daily choice to live and abide and do the things that God calls us to do, to move forward. One of those things is the oath of the soldier to follow his commander, and we do that by prayer. Like, Lord, I need you. And you go, well, how do I pray? What does that look like? Just start praying. Pray in every way. Pray in every season. Um, Pray in groups. Pray individually. Pray silent. Pray shouting if you'd like. Pray walking. Pray in your car. Pray as you go to bed. Pray kneeling. Pray as you groan. Pray asking that the Holy Spirit would even pray on your behalf because you don't even know what to pray for. Pray in every way, constantly and fervently for all things and all seasons and all ways. Pray and ask our Heavenly Father to give us wisdom and to give us protection and to give us insight and to help us stop being stupid. Because I don't know about you, I'm stupid. That's my problem. I'm stupid. I live in the flesh way too much. I'm stupid. And I'm really prone to be stupid without him. Anybody relate? And so here's the deal. Why oftentimes do we do the things we do? And it's because we're slothful and we're lazy. Winston Churchill says it this way um, in World War II. He goes, I must drop one word of caution for the next, um, for next to cowardice and treachery. The greatest thing is overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness. It is the worst of wartime crimes. What is it? It is neglect and slothfulness. It is neglecting to put God where he needs to be in the way we discern his word, read his word, apply his word, live it out, and stay in constant communication with the Lord of hosts. May we go and do that well. And if you're here and you go, hey, I just don't know how to study my Bible. I just don't know where to begin. Please send me an email Write it on the back of a communication card because we will adequately address that, whether that be with your journey group or even if that's just a whole nother night of the week that we just have to gather a bunch of people and go, let's begin to study our Bibles well. I'm willing to do whatever it takes so that the people of God are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why? Because there's, there's too much at stake for us to not know the word of God and to live in it. So I pray that he will encourage our hearts. Um, there's a salutation at the end. Um, he sends a salutation through his buddy, uh, Tychicus. Um, y'all should read that this week on your own, uh, but I'm not going to address it. It's the last uh, handful of verses. Uh, it's just grace and peace as Paul goes. And so as we go today, may grace and peace uh, be with us as we go our ways. May we have a great week of worship. But listen, we're not dismissing yet on either campus. We're going to sing a little bit. Um, but I want to do that here in just a sec. Let's pray. And then we're going to enjoy our Heavenly Father as we sing and celebrate His goodness. God, be with us. We love you. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need in your word that pertains to life and godliness. Lord, may we live in it. May we grow in it. May we leave the elementary and rudimentary things of our life. And may we grow up in maturity. There's many of us in this room who have proclaimed you as the Lord of our lives for decades. And we still just don't know your word, the counsel of it. Lord, help us to not do that in our lives continually. Lord, help us to lean in and know you and love you and serve you and begin to discover your truth. Thank you for your truth. That is the definition of what we need in life. Help us to live it. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.